0: He picked up the book and examined it from all sides. It was bound in copper-colored silk that shimmered when he moved it about. Leafing through the pages, he saw the book was printed in two colors. There seemed to be no pictures, but there were large, beautiful capital letters at the beginning of the chapters. Examining the binding more closely, he discovered two snakes on it, one light and one dark. They were biting each other's tail, so forming an oval. And inside the oval, in strangely intricate letters, he saw the title, The Never-Ending Story. a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
1: The film, called The Neverending Story, cuts out at least half of the novel, called Die Unendliche Geschichte, which would be more accurately translated as The Infinite Story. The film thus leads the viewer to believe that the supreme goal in the story is the regeneration of Fantasia, and that Bastion accomplishes this goal by giving the childlike empress a new name. This does happen in the book at about the halfway mark What then does not happen is Bastion's trite and absurd return to the real world on the back of Falkor. Instead, Bastion remains in Fantasia. Or rather, he meets the Empress in a kind of primordial void because Fantasia has been obliterated by the Nothing. Fantasia does not then reappear instantly ex nihilo exactly as it was, the way the movie implies. Instead, Bastion must participate in the creation of a new heaven and new earth, Now there is one more power and personality at work in Fantasia, that of Bastion the Demiurge. That is from
0: Absolute Music, a 2022 novel by Jonathan Geltner.
1: What is the secret of this
0: enchanted book? What wonders are hidden within its pages? What magical spell does it cast on all who read it? What is the secret of the never-ending story? Hello everyone and welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin and with me today I have author Jonathan Geltner who wrote Absolute Music and he's also an Inklings fan. Um, I met Jonathan at a conference not long ago and he graciously agreed to come on the show to talk about his own book. As well as the never-ending story, a novel by Michael Ende, which plays an important role in his own novel. How you doing, Jonathan?
1: I'm well, thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and yeah, just letting me talk with you about the never-ending story. Again, I got so excited when, as Jonathan was reading his wonderfully poetic new novel. Oh, I always forget the name of this conference. The um, It's just called
1: the Catholic Imagination Conference. I'd Yeah, the
0: Catholic Imagination well, Conference. University yeah. of Dallas, anyway. Yeah, it was a, it was at UD. But as he, as he was reading it, he read part of his novel where his main character talked a bit about the never ending story and it really made me excited because The NeverEnding Story really, for me, is was my introduction to fantasy. And while it's not a work by one of the Inklings, it is profound. But in the English world, at least uh, a little-known fantasy novel. It's, it's also a really important novel to me as it played a, the role in my life that Tolkien's or Lewis's work played in many others. Um, it was the first work I read as a child that made me feel immersed in another world. And I don't know if part of that was that I'd seen the film before, so I was expecting that. You know, when I found the novel itself in a secondhand bookstore as a fourth grader, I gobbled up the never ending story. And I don't think I would have taken to The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings or Narnia in the same way that I did if if I hadn't read it. And and it kind of marked a period in my life where I just read and watched anything that was fantasy that I could get my hands on. Jonathan, do you remember your first experience reading The NeverEnding Story?
1: I didn't even know it existed as a book until I was researching the novel, Absolute Music. I certainly saw the film as a kid. My experience with with the film is not my narrator's experience in the novel. I can't even remember why I thought of, thought of the film at that point and why, why it made its way into... The novel, but once it did it, it had a very huge impact on the tone and the, the course of the novel to follow. I guess I got curious about it because as, as the narrator says at one point, you know, he, he's he re he rewatches the film for the first time since a child, and he's shocked by the ending. He hates the ending. Um, this part where, where Bastion comes back in on Falcor and chases the, the bullies <laughs> into the dumpster. <laughs> And so my narrator is thinking like, well, this seems so wrong. There's no way, like there must have been some prior version of this in which that's not how it ended and so i along with my narrator had to look up and figure out what what was really the story behind the never-ending story and then i realized oh there's this german author michael Ende, who was clearly punning on his own surname when he titled the story yeah right, Enda, right. Uh, geschichte in german I, I looked him up and and discovered wow he, he's written a ton of stuff i went through that phase as a kid like, like you and like very many people i think who just just like devouring every conceivable kind of fantasy I could discover. Mm. And and then, you know, I studied this kind of thing and, and things adjacent to it for many years in my later education. Actually reading his work was incredibly delightful. I would also highly recommend his book Momo, M O M O about this little girl named Momo. Really wonderful fantasy would would pair very Nicely, I think, with C.S. Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, the last of his his space trilogy. Nicely or alarmingly, maybe I should say. But but the mm. thing that was interesting to me reading Enda is that it was very delightful reading him. I, I was reading him in my like mid-30s, a new father, uh, an MFA student, having gone back to school, having been through a PhD program that I ended up not even finishing, feeling dejected in a lot of ways about literature, um, or the study of literature, feeling desperate about writing my own book. And so a lot of things I would pick up at that time, I would be like, I just wouldn't feel much. You know, it was just kind of a, a low point in my study of literature. But I picked up Enda's books, and I read them. And it was like something from another world. It was very, very sui generis, maybe. I had 20 years or more, 25 years of reading fantasy and other literature under my belt at that point. So I think you know, that might speak to the the freshness, the sort of perennial freshness of, of Enda's writing, which is really just charming.
0: Absolutely. The interesting thing about his, and I don't know if I caught onto this when I was in fourth grade when I first read it, but it's a book of fantasy, but it's also a book about fantasy, right? Um, it's a, or, yeah. or, or really just about the imagination, the way that we use imagination, the way we use literature. Part of the reason Enda at least hated, and most listeners have probably at least dipped their toe into the water of '80s fantasy uh, with so many Muppets, but and they hated the adaptation that that was most of our only like introduction to his work. Took his name off of it. Wanted to be uh, you know completely sort of disassociated from yeah. the adaptation that we've all seen. Part of. The reason for that, you know, he's written a work that is, it's a work written in two parts where the second part mirrors the first. And what we get as, as your, you know, character MacPhail so, so aptly observes in absolute music, what we get in the movie is just the first half. And then it's capped with this absurd Bastion riding around on a luck dragon, you know, tormenting his tormentors instead of what actually follows that moment where Bastion finally gives the childlike empress a new name, which is Bastion is sucked into the world of the book itself the evil is no longer the nothing, this force of annihilation that has to do with people not reading anymore, right? but rather the force of his own tyranny of of that world because he is encouraged to wish for things while he's in Fantastica. The more that he wishes uh, and the more that he kind of spends his time in the fantasy world in this wish fulfillment, the more he forgets who he was uh, in the human world uh, and the more that he actually loses himself and that's the um, equal an opposite dilemma or, or conflict to what the nothing was in the first half of the book, and Bastion actually becomes the villain in the never-ending story, um, even, even as he's you know still still the protagonist. Yeah. His
1: own worst enemy. Really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's both at once. Yeah, well, it's his disordered will, I guess, as uh, Catholic or Christian tradition would call it. And 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 it mm-hmm. was a Christian. I haven't been able to determine much in my very cursory investigations about the details of his metaphysical or religious commitments, but. He was certainly on record calling himself a Christian, if perhaps a somewhat unorthodox one or unchurched one. He also he also was into Kabbalah and mixed up with right a really interesting weird guy Friedrich Weinreb, a very controversial figure. Um, <laughs> I mean, like any writer, he gets he knows all the best people. Uh, <laughs> it's um it's a, it's an interesting story, but um but yeah he yeah he becomes that uh, is Sebastian becomes uh. The problem it becomes really much about what's going on inside Bastion's soul, his spirit, rather than the fantasy world, which is still very vividly presented in the book, all all around him. I mean, as as Sebastian yeah. wrecks it, <laughs> um, yeah. it's it's very beautiful, but he right re- he sure does wreck it. Yeah, and then as I recall, and you'll you'll know better than me, but the nothing is still like around. It's still like causing damage to Fantasia. It's like been defeated. It's like in abeyance, and the, yeah. the real danger is. Is definitely Bastion, and it becomes a Psychomachia. It, it's so I mean, this is the the original allegorical work of literature in the Western tradition. Supposedly, Prudentius' Psychomachia mm-hmm. in like the sixth century or whatever, and it literally means the battle in or of the soul, and and it's about this internal struggle and what fantasy can do, what allegory can do, is sort of project that outward and give it geographical expanse and and symbolism and imagery, and that's what you get in the second half of the Never any story it becomes a completely different kind of book it's like a different mode of literature which is amazing yeah. there's not a lot of books that do that although i would say that what, what one thing that just occurred to me is uh don quixote in which the second part is is like conscious of the first part you know i mean it's like affecting the world and uh i'm sure actually that that he the end probably had that in mind i mean there was a time when everyone read don quixote uh, that time is gone but i think Ender would, <laughs> would have known that and that would have been a, an important influence and and even though everyone calls that like the first novel or whatever in western tradition it's really coming right out of the the late medieval and renaissance world that is what modern literary genre we call fantasy comes out of so there's a connection there for sure
0: I think that's a great parallel with Don Quixote because both forget kind of who they are in their need to be something more glamorous than than, their, uh, than 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 what they really are. And at the same time, like a lot of people, especially who have adapted Don Quixote after the, have emphasized, you know, the, the fact that the world maybe needs someone like him as well, right? Um, oh so, yeah, so, absolutely. So similar to the first half of The Never Ending Story.
1: Yeah, the salvational figure of fantasy is always going to be a flawed, conflicting human being who's only a human being. Yeah. And, and it's good that way. Something that I'm I'm often finding myself wanting to preach to people these days <laughs> is that the concept of fantasy, very broadly construed, not just as a literary genre, is, is a two-edged sword and always has been, well, at least for a while has been. Um, there's good fantasy and there's bad fantasy. And so all the best fantasy writing always takes account of that and deals with and shows to the reader the dangers and perils of fantasy as well as its beauties and, and its yeah. regenerative power. And I mean, certainly like Tolkien at the beginning of the essay on fairy stories, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's speaking somewhat playfully of his lecture and he's saying the land of fairy is perilous and there, right. there and whatnot. But I mean, it's actually true. The capacity to fantasize, to mm-hmm. exercise the mental faculty of fantasy is as with anything we might use, make use of prone to being abused. And right. Fantasy has, it's, you get like this wavering back and forth historically. It starts out its life as a term, very negative. Phant- phantasia are, are like the hallucinatory temptations of early Christian ascetics. And then it ha- goes through this evolution and gets contrasted with theophany, where, in which you behold the wonder of, th- of the world, the wonders of the world. But as revelations of God, as emanations from the divine source, whereas fantasy is like fixating on the things of the pleasures of the world as ends in their own right. And or with like attachment craving uh, to put it in Eastern terms, which is relevant to Enda, as we'll get to. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Fantasia and Theophania can be contrasted that way. They have the same root, this Greek Mm -hmm. that means sort of showing forth or a visionary experience but then it evolves, and, and by the time of Dante, in, in the Divine Comedy, you get this phrase high fantasy, alta fantasia, which means that the fantasy, it, he doesn't call it theophany. He could have, I guess, if he if he'd wanted to, but he, he sticks with fantasy at that point, because it means the same as imagination. But he has high fantasy, alta fantasia, so it comes from heaven. It's a heavenly vision. Yeah, the phrase appears twice in there. And then and then I feel like fantasy starts to become more and more positive after after that, sort of in the second millennium, right. And 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 kind of trivial too, you know. Like you fantasize about something you'd like to do, and yeah, maybe it's not something you should be doing, but it's just a fantasy. So who cares? And maybe now in the age of like fake news and whatnot, we're getting back to a new appreciation of the negative side of fantasy. Right. Yeah. You know, point is, it's got these this this twofold valence, and uh, and I think Enda's book is all about that. I mean, it, it's it's yeah. obsessed with that. It, it's it's like trying to figure out how can fantasy deliver us but how can we not let it ruin us in the process yeah
0: yeah yeah it's very similar in, in that way to um, Smith of Wooden Major as well. Yeah, you know both both Tolkien and Enda here are concerned with oh, okay, okay, yeah, we're, we're fantasy authors. we love this stuff, but it can destroy your life. It's very much a perilous realm in Smith of Wood Major as well. As, as well as being somewhere that something that certainly the people in the town of Wooden Major need more of, right kind of starved of. novel. The way that it's written is a, as a kind of, you know, there's a frame story, which is a, a little picked on pudgy German kid finds himself in a, in a or, bookshop. Or Canadian
1: if it's the movie. Right,
0: right. Yeah. If, if it's if it's the movie, he's not pudgy and he's Canadian. That's right. Nice, um,
1: flipping young Canadian. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what's really neat is the first image that you have in the book is Carl Conrad Coriander old books flipped yeah. so that it's looks like the shop as you would see it from inside the shop right so it's uh, it's, right, it's the right. inverse of, of it's, it's an included, and curander yeah. curander, old books um so you get a kind of topsy-turvy the type of fantasy that's shallowly fantastical thing you know along the lines of like chesterton talks about in uh when he sees a sign backwards or something like that and he starts making up stories about the sign I forget what essay he he writes about it but yeah this this little boy uh, of about 10 or 12 comes in the owner uh Carl Conrad coriander uh, insults him a bunch and is is reading this book the never-ending story and I at the top of the um of, of the episode I, I read where Bastion sees this and he's just sort of compelled to take it right and that's that is what he does and that's the frame and the frame is him skipping school reading up in uh, the school um, Attic um, and Um, And and the really interesting thing about this work is that you have the frame throughout interacting with the work itself. So again and again, Bastion will do these things in the quote unquote real world. And then he'll read in the book that, you know, someone heard this or that noise that he just made or or something or something like that. And he gradually begins to realize that. This whole quest that this main character Atreyu is going on has been undertaken to draw him into the story so that he'd care enough about it to give the childlike empress a new name. Right, because it can
1: only come from a human, you know, a real child, a child in the primary world, as Tolkien would say. Right, you himself or anyone else in Fantasia can't provide that name without which Fantasia will will succumb to the nothing. Yeah, I want to actually say it's not a frame; it's not a framing device. I, right. I think that's a framing device is a closely related thing. It's a much more important thing than is often talked about and give it credit for in in literary circles, be they scholarly or creative. Um, but this goes beyond a framing device. yeah, The the whole book is about this interaction of fantasy and reality and how each influences either to good or ill the other. It's sort of like two stories woven together. And in that primary world, so in Tolkien's essay, you know, he's got this where we get the notion of the primary world, which is this world in which we're talking and any representation of this world. In fiction. And then the secondary world is is an invented world. And it could be some like transfigured version of this world, but it, it's sort of invented or, or imaginative version of it. In, in the primary world story of the never ending story, Bastion is not just a bullied kid at school, he's also a kid grieving the death of his mother. That's right. Yeah. Um, we don't know why she's died prematurely and left i guess an only child and and a husband widower and that is looming over over the entire thing and and yeah. to the point where i mean if you know <laughs> if you wanted to psychologize everything and get a little cynical, you just be like, oh well, you know he's he's like traumatized by grief, and he's and he just imagines it all you know and, and that's sort of like a, a like late 20th century reading of and, uh, you know, like that's how it would be presented in the classroom, at least the classrooms I've known as a student. But but it seems to be much more profound than that. There's no suggestion mm-hmm. in the in the book or the film that this is just like a giant coping mechanism on Bastion's part for the fact that he's lost. Right. His mom and He's got a consequently strained relationship with his father like no it's, yeah. it's no much, that's you know, like
0: something that you're that your student in in a literature class who yeah. was yeah. a psychology major and had, <laughs> <laughs> and had started like, oh, taking psychology it's classes it's like, all that,
1: because bastion's sad <laughs> that would be her
0: paper yeah
1: um, i mean you could write a book like that uh, yeah. you could write a book that, and it could be very compelling about any anyone a child or an adult who kind of loses their mind uh, but that would be fantasy construed really almost as basically insanity and that's Mm -hmm. not how fantasy is being presented it's being presented as perilous to use Tolkien's word but that's a little bit different from saying it's it's just a, a sort of useful delusion that that people can use occasionally to help themselves out of a tough Time. So there's this this back and forth. There's this intermingling of primary and secondary world. That's that's just like a part of the genre. It's the heart of the genre, but it has to be handled deftly. It can't leave you thinking, "Where's where does Falcor sleep in Vancouver?" Which is what the movie <laughs> he's wondering about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's next? Does <laughs> does Bastion become the ruler of the human world? Um, you know, in the in the movie, can
1: Falcor sink an aircraft carrier
0: <clears throat> when he is finally destroyed by the Canadian? air force uh,
1: we'll have a different theme song at that point So to go back to each of our, our sort of formative experiences as children encountering fantasy, and Tolkien tries to talk about this too in, in that essay and, and and address it to some degree in his writing, obliquely, of course. But the, the way that, that children or youths experience fantasy is not of too separate competing worlds such that one can can draw you wholly away from the other Hmm. they experience it as a palimpsest an overlapping and a commingling because these two worlds are, are complementary they fit together they don't Compete—it's not a zero-sum game between reality and fantasy, because that's usually how we treat it. At least us grim adults,
0: rather than the term sort of escapist, right? That instead it's it's sort of regenerative to um, the way that the person sort of looks at the world around them, right? In other words, like having encountered Tolkien's ants, you then don't stay inside and stay away from trees because you want to see the ants all the time, but rather they add something to your understanding of the trees, or are you saying something different?
1: It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not... Well, so Tolkien will say about escapism, he'll say in that essay, you know, escapism is good if what you're escaping from is some actually delusional, modern, consumerist, shallow, terrible, disenchanted world. Right. the way we normally mean escapism, yes, you can't escape from reality. Where would you go? Fantasy is part of reality. You can't escape from creation, but at least not while you're still alive. I mean, I, don't know, I see this how my kids play. You have kids, I mean, I don't know, you watch your kids play, like, mm-hmm. The, the imagination just permeates everything to such an extent, and so easily and quickly for children that there's no way they're just like inventing it all whole out of whole cloth every yeah, moment. Yeah. It's like they're actually in this other world, and they can coexist in that world and and what us dumb adults perceive as the only world, all the yeah, time yeah. or whenever they want to. Right. And so that's what I would say about fantasy, but. Of course, if you lose your grip, then you can get too immersed in that other world. And that's one form of sickness. And then the other form is simply losing sight of that other world. And getting immersed in this one, and 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 getting cynical, and and and. But what it is? So it makes it makes for depth. It makes for distance. There's these two worlds, and you move between them constantly. And they, even though they fit together, they they match up harmoniously. It's nuptial. It's it's this complementary union. Um, Maybe we should talk about the R in in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Taiji, but that's what it is. Really, it's not competing paradigms. To use some ugly. <laughs> grad right. school board. It, it's uh you know it, it, it's actually just
0: a, a twofold creation like you're saying mutually generative you one gives meaning to the other and and, and uh, vice yeah. versa What, what Bastion reads when he opens this book is um, a world, uh, kind of a, Fantastica is not Narnia or Middle-earth, it's sort of like the sum of all imaginary worlds, and so you get a few pieces of it sort of described in uh, an interesting way, but different creatures, don't necessarily mix with with one another so you have this will the wisp this rock eater um this this thing called a tiny and a thing called a night hob who are all messengers from their respective parts of fanta fantastica okay. because of course the movie changed the name of the world, and I'm not sure why, uh, but, but in the book, at least as translated by Ralph Mannheim, it's Fantastica. But yeah, they... that,
1: that's what it is in German. Uh, okay. You, you have to imagine a German person, Fantastica. <laughs> it sounds better in German. Fantastica, yeah, it
0: does. It does.
1: Like a kind of plastic or something in English.
0: It's hard to hear Fantasia in the movie and not think of the, you know, Disney. The, the previous, uh, uh, yeah, no. the
1: Disney film. Yeah, uh, that, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. You know, so the geography of Fantastica, um, I'll try to start calling it is fascinating. I, I'm just remembering this. It's like they come from like the cardinal directions, right? They're like one comes from the north, and one the south, the east, the west, and the yeah, the, the the rock eater and the snail and and the snail guy, Night Hob, I think, uh, and yeah. But you're right. It's like they have each coming from a climatic and aesthetic zone of the place that they all know. They're part of the same world. They, they just—it's a big world. They—they they don't normally mm-hmm. interact. Just like you don't typically hobnob with people from South America and India and Australia and Europe all at the same time. You know, it's—it's it's the whole world. It's like got all four quarters of the globe, which is um, actually an aspect of it. Uh, well, of just the film, but it's certainly in the book even more so that the narrator of my novel picks up on is that the fantastica seems like a, a glorious presentation of the same sorts of beauty and geographies that the earth has. I mean, it's, it's one of the best things that the film does. I don't know if you want to talk about what's good about the film. What's yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause I think it got some that, things right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it just, it presents the world as the earth, the real earth as just, Incredibly enchanting and beautiful, yeah. Um, especially from Falcor when they're flying around, but but any scene. I mean, even the dismal swamp, the swamp of sadness, this mm-hmm. like, whatever it's called. But I used to know all the names for these in German, and they're, they're fantastic, so to speak. But yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, but even that is like at least for me as a kid watching the film. Yeah, I mean, I was like horrified by the swamp, and even like the tenth time I watched the movie, I was like, oh no, Artax is gonna die. I can't stand it. Uh-huh. But still, I love to watch the swamp. It was just like kind of beautiful and it's it's dismal way. And, and that's just one of the things that the film does so well. And it does mm-hmm. that because it's in the book for sure. I yeah. mean, there's no question that Michael Enda was deeply attuned to the beauties of the earth in, in their multiple topographies and and weathers and seasons and and I feel that that's actually one of the greatest things that fantasy can do as a literary genre. And Tolkien says, I forget where, that it was in, in fantastic sort of tales, fairy tales and stuff that he first discovered the, the power, uh, the, the reality of words connoting tangible, real things, you know, the, the, the hmm. real stuff of this world and, and, and its landscapes and stuff. And I have never read a really good fantasy. And and the Inklings are all excellent at this, especially Lewis and Tolkien. And I'm really appreciating this reading the Narnia books to my kids now. They are all great, wonderful, rich landscape description. Yeah, it's not. And it's all just transfigured versions of the Earth. It's not like, right, it's not science fiction. It's not some other weird kind of place. It's versions of the Earth that we all know. And live in and so it's actually a a preeminent genre for focusing on that ecological splendor of creation which for some reason i guess because genre fantasy that's exclusively secondary world and in the hands of writers who don't give a crap about landscape description um that we lose sight of that—that that this is something fantasy can do, but it, it, it absolutely can, or at least its its classic instances is, are full of these incredible descriptions of the world that have practically fallen out of genre fantasy or yeah. real literary fiction. Oh, for sure. And I—I I mean, to be honest,
0: you know, when I was. Uh... Uh, in junior high reading Lord of the Rings for the first time, I skipped over <laughs> the landscape descriptions <laughs> because they were so yeah. long and I couldn't picture them, you know, cause it's That's just not so something much... that was done. Well, and, we're not uh...
1: trained to do it anymore. And, and, and yeah, yeah it's not, um, it's yeah. not, I mean, it used to be, you could start, you could open up a novel by, by having a, uh, all right. So I'll just confess my novel begins with a massive description of a tree, but mm-hmm. the, you, you could open a novel with, with like a giant description of a place yeah and readers would be like this is reasonable (laughs) yeah Yeah. the world is real I would like to know about it and and now no everything is like inward it's it's all psychologized and it um, is
0: I I would like to like if you if you do decide to publish in fantasy I I would like to set you the challenge of beginning your fantasy novel with a landscape description oh it does and seeing
1: (laughs) yeah uh, uh, well maybe we'll talk about it later yeah um, yeah yeah um, uh, if you want to hear about what i'm working on now but yeah i would, I would, I would yeah i mean I, I actually don't think i know how to write a book without beginning yeah in, in some version of that and as you know with absolute music it starts out with these trees it starts and ends with trees
0: right right uh, yeah which is which is awesome I and mean, i yeah i'm i'm excited about. It talking about the the trees particularly which seemed to be just a and i'm not a musician but i was reaching for the word "late motif i don't know if that's right um but uh no but that's, great. that's seemed, great seemed to be like a, a again and again right it's the theme that comes up yeah Um, yeah
1: no it it is uh, i get that from tolkien so i mean yeah uh, just to refer to your 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 core theme on this program i mean i i think that the inklings and especially tolkien and lewis one of the reasons they have such lasting power is that these these oxford dudes were very attuned to to the the landscapes of the earth. And yeah, it came from a time when that was just sort of expected of writers. It was not even expected, yeah. it was a matter of course, you know, that you could name all these plants and flowers, you know, and, and um I mean there's a whole there's books about like the flora of Middle Earth, um, or the nature of Middle Earth. And that includes human nature too, of course, and and, and the body embodiment in any way. And um it's just a it's a glory of that that particular um, sort of flourishing, literary flourishing. So for me, the, the first thing that ever immersed me in a literary world was a radio drama production of The Hobbit hmm. that had been made, I think, in 1979 by some weird company that I don't remember what it is. It's not the BBC, but had all these you know, voice actors and, and sound effects and everything on six cassette tapes, yellow tapes in a wooden box. Oh, nice. It had an engraved um cover, the title. And I listened to this when I was almost seven years old uh, as my family moved from the east coast to the Ohio Valley. Uh, so big long drive. And and then I so I listened to it. But then we would make regular trips to either Pittsburgh, which is about a five hour drive, five and a half hours from Cincinnati, or to the other side of Pennsylvania, rural northeastern Pennsylvania, where my other family had long car drives. And I'd listen to this thing. This is hours and hours long to read the thing. So I'd be hearing the story of The Hobbit, vividly imagining it staring out the windows of the car as it traveled through the, the Appalachian Plateau, the Allegheny Plateau and mm-hmm. then Allegheny Mountains and then into all the way over to the, the Poconos in northeastern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And, and I would see all these places as I was hearing this story about these characters who traipse across a long distance and they go through mountains and they go through a great forest. So for me, the Mur- Mirkwood is the Allegheny Mountains and then the uh-huh. northern Pennsylvania. And so they blend it. They they blend yeah. it by consciousness. And maybe this is why I insist. Well, fantasy and reality are is this palimpsest, complementary, nuptial creation. And and it's maybe it all goes back to that. It yeah. Away. But that's that was for me the the beginning of the first literary immersion I had. And eventually, I'd be able to read the book for myself. And now I teach the book. <laughs> like-
0: yeah, absolutely, that and that's that's a great way to experience that story for the first time. There's a similar thing for me. We're we're doing uh, the Voyage of the Don this season, and there's a similar thing when Lewis describes the sea in all these different ways. It reminds me of being at the ocean, right? Or 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 when I'm at the ocean, it reminds me of the way Lewis describes the sea. I remember going on a um, on my own journey in my twenties through Romania. I was hitchhiking around through Romania. I remember like wishing so badly that I'd Thought to bring Lord of the Rings with me because <laughs> so often That's I just you know, there are just things about the way the way they do journeys right these are these are wonderful journey books written by people who clearly had gone for very long walks right around yeah. the English countryside at the very least like we've kind of been saying you know it's 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 the role of fantasy reenchanting a world so that you don't view the natural world around you as just a bunch of things right but rather as something that has life and something that's breathing and, and has has a kind of mystery to it that, that you can kind of glimpse part of through your reading of fiction and through partaking of, you know, things that other authors have seen. Um, in in trees or the sea or or, or mountains or whatever else. That mystery is not exhausted by those works either. No, they're uh, a gateway. They're they're an
1: age and a gateway. to something you can carry on, a quest that you can carry on yourself throughout your life. It gets harder once you're old and disillusioned. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. (laughs) But you can actually still do it. it. And it helps to have kids to remind you of it. I actually, yeah, I don't know what would be the fate of fantasy as a literary genre if people didn't keep having Having kids. I mean, I don't want to start sounding dire, but we might be a, going to find out the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah the, the genre has changed a great deal in the last generation or so.
0: Basically the land of Fantastica is being swallowed up by this nothing and when you look at the nothing it's as though you were blind uh, there's there's literally nothing there, which is which is interesting, right? The way the way that the movie interprets this, because the movie interprets it as a kind of like storm or or even looks a bit like a hurricane almost. Whereas whereas in the book, it's far less obviously dramatic than that. But you do have in the, in the book creatures from Fantastica actually running and jumping into the nothing, right? Similar to uh, Dante, in, I uh, that. yeah, I mean, it's like people trying to get into hell, right? In Dante's Inferno right? Who are, who are okay. on the vestibule, right? Just, you know, all, all massing around like leaves trying to jump in. Atreyu is a greenskin who hunts the purple buffalo and he has to miss his special hunt that will make him a man because he is the chosen tro- right. hero to wear Orin and to find the cure for the childlike empress, which is also the cure for the nothing. Um, Orin is the uh, is medallion that Atreyu wears around his neck that has one snake, uh, a dark colored snake, biting the tail of a light colored snake who's biting his tail, and and so Atreyu goes through all sorts of trials and uh, pursued by this by this wolf named Gmork, gets away from him fairly easily. Uh, partly he runs into a luck dragon who begins to fly him all around. The luck dragon's name. Is Valcour. is Valcor who looks less like a dog in the book and more like a lion? Yeah. Um, okay.
1: That that's what I thought. Yeah. Almost. But, uh... like- Type.
0: But he does wink a lot in the book, just like he does in, yeah. in in the movie. So there's the there's the whole winking thing that they did get right. There's this showdown, and I won't read the whole thing between Gmork and Atreyu when Gmork is separated from you know he loses the Orin, he's separated from Falcor, and this is again still in the in the first half of the book, but it's near the end. He begins talking with Gmork, who says, "Oh no, uh, um, I'm not just a creature of Fantastica. I'm a werewolf. Um, I'm partly." In one world and partly in another, um, and I—I I look like a human in the human world. Atreyu, what he's been doing and what he knows he needs to do, what his what his quest is, is to get into the human world and find the savior of Fantastica. Um, but he can't do it, and. Mork says, you can actually get into the human world. And when you get to the human world, the nothing will cling to you because the way to get there is to go through the nothing and to jump into the nothing. You'll be like a contagious disease that makes humans blind so they can no longer distinguish between reality and illusion. Do you know what you and your kind are called there? No, Atreyu whispered lies gmork barked atreyu shook his head all the blood had gone out of of his lips how can that be gmork was enjoying atreyu's consternation you ask me what you will be there but what are you here what are you creatures of fantastica dreams poetic inventions characters in a never-ending story do you think you're real well yes here in your world you are but when you've been through the nothing you won't be real anymore you'll be unrecognizable and you will be in another world in that world, you fantasticans won't be anything like yourselves. You will bring delusion and madness into the human world. Yeah. Tell me, Sonny, what do you suppose will become of all the spook city folk who have jumped into the nothing? They will become delusions in the minds of human beings, fears where there is nothing to fear, desires for vain, hurtful things, despairing thoughts where there is no reason to despair. All of us, asked to you in horror. No, said Gmork, there are many kinds of delusion. According to what you are here, ugly or beautiful, stupid or clever, you will become ugly or beautiful, stupid or clever clever lies. He, he kind of goes on and, and says, that's why humans hate Fantastica and everything that comes from here. They want to destroy it. And they don't realize that by trying to destroy it, they multiply the lies that keep flooding the human world. So in other words, if, words, if the nothing is kind of the, um, I don't know, uh, the the symbol or, or the effect of humans no longer reading no longer using their imagination yeah.
1: it's the human attempt to destroy it to to, mm-hmm. to get free of it he, he he knew the ascetics he must have known the early ascetics this is straight monastic disposition coming from gamork here
0: right right and and he's okay. and he's but saying it's
1: coming from gamork it's not coming from enda
0: right right you know he's saying that by rejecting fantasy uh, by rejecting the fantasticans, um, by rejecting imagination, they don't realize it, but they actually, humans in the primary world or, or real world or, or, or whatever, actually actually are more easily manipulated by lies, right? In, they're in heaping that.
1: delusions upon themselves. So, I mean, he's, he's keenly aware of the, the bad kind of fantasy, yeah. and he's saying, is saying, through Gamorg. Indeed, fantasy could be dangerous, but you try to you try to ruin it and you're going to only it's it's a it's a tar baby. You're just going to make it worse for yourself. Instead, you'd be better off learning how to use fantasy for the good. Right. How right. to revel in it, learning how to appreciate it, but control it or, or at least to. Engage with it responsibly, um, with temperance, because Gamork is a great, it's a good heretic. Any heretic takes takes part of the truth and then magnifies it and uses it to <laughs> terrify people. So, and that that's so that's what he's he's a great heresiarch. Gamork is. He's yeah. he, He's saying, look, you know, this is fantasy's bad. Fantasy yeah. is bad if, if if you make the mistake that indeed people do make. So I mean, Gamork's not lying. This is actually right. how will have felt. And this is what people have done to try and gain some sense of control over their destinies and and deny their mortality. They'll flee the imagination. I just saw some guy on Twitter, whatever, talking about, oh, yeah, there was a Roman warlord named Artorius, maybe. And there was some Greek guy named Georgios, maybe. But that doesn't mean that the St. George myths are true or the Arthur stories are true. We should stick to the facts. There's Mm -hmm. always some stiff somewhere saying, just the facts, (laughs) ma'am. You can live your life that way if you want, but it's not going to be very satisfying. And yeah. you're not really going to have access to the full truth. So yeah, Gumork's G- G- an amazing, an amazing mouthpiece for this perennial, irrepressible human tendency to insist, no, damn it, to hell with fantasy. I'm going to get control of things by flattening everything out mm-hmm. and being damn sure that I know exactly what's true and what's not, what's real and what's not. Then everything will settle down. And I'll be yeah. able to live my life. And then of course at that point you have no life left to live. Yep. Really. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, listen to what Gamar says. <clears throat> when your turn comes to jump into the nothing, you too will be a nameless servant of power with no will of your own. Who knows what use they will make of you? Maybe you'll help them persuade people to buy things they don't need, or hate things they know nothing about, or hold beliefs <laughs> that make them easy to handle, or doubt the truths that might save them. Yes, you little fantastic and big things will be done in the human world with your help. War is started, empires founded. So yeah, I mean Gmork I think is is super insightful because he knows that when people discard imagination it doesn't make them harder to manipulate it makes them easier to manipulate um, and and uh and, and because because we can't really do with without it and so people are going to be able to take a hold of that faculty and use it when we're not playing a kind of believing game with with ideas and with fiction right which which sort of tells you at the outset hey this is this is a work of fiction it will enrich your life but it is true primarily in a another world right at least it, you know true in the primary sense in this other world so that you can see the overarching truths right that that work in this primary world as well as in yours or that work in the secondary world as well as in yours but okay. uh, not having these other worlds that you can travel to through the medium of story means that you have less of an idea of, of what's true in your own world but but yeah it's such a brilliant little little part uh readers have already heard you know basically what happens in the second part that that we deal with the other side of that coin which is which is someone who travels into fantastica and 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 completely or or very nearly completely forgets who they actually are right and there's a there's a harmony and there's a balance that needs to happen I think that's as good a place as any. I could probably talk about this novel all night.
1: And and, and Enda himself is a fascinating character. The the one thing I would throw out there about him that means a lot to me, Enda was very fascinated by East Asian culture, civilization, literature. That's something that has done a lot for me personally. As as a Westerner, as a a Christian of Jewish heritage, I'm, I'm a thoroughly Western man and not abashed about it. But I have found huge help on many levels by delving into East Asian traditions and culture in a variety of ways, literature, spiritual traditions, martial arts. Enda seems to also have been one of these types um, who's found a great aid in looking East, far East to his preoccupations and struggles as a Western man. And um, you can see that in his fantasy and all his fantasy. I think an immersion in a fundamentally sort of Buddhist, Taoist matrix enriches his writing a great deal. It's an interesting feature of him. He's not just all scandalous, Kabbalist, <laughs> West German of the 20th century. Yeah. He's also got um, this really interesting, open minded, fantastic imagination that, that involved in other non-Western traditions that I think is particularly valuable. Not something you see much of, at least in any competent way, in Western authors, usually prior to the middle 20th century. Although I've, I've always enjoyed the way that... I appreciate the way, that, still, that, that C.S. Lewis makes use of the concept of the Tao. Yeah. Um, I I don't think he messed that up. I, I think he he got that right. But anyway, yeah, that is just a little, little um, some props I wanted to give to Enda. And, and actually learning that about him was... Encouraging and helped me realize, oh, I this interest of mine in in East Asian literature and tradition and history, yeah, that, that's legitimate. That's gonna the thing that I can do as a Westerner and and not feel foolish about.
0: Yeah, and and you pointed out uh, rightly, <laughs> you know, when I mentioned, um, oh, well, the 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 double snake with them each. Sort of eating their tail is is like an a um You pointed out well, it's a lot like the the dominant symbol of Taoism, right? Uh, the yin and the yang. Yeah, but, we uh, call uh, it the yin
1: yang uh, symbol. The Taiji is is the yeah. It's the circle with the divided black and white, but the division is an undulating line, not a straight line, not mm-hmm. a diameter. And then each each half contains a dot that is the color of the other half, and it looks like two fishes chasing each other. Yeah, yeah. We we don't have time to get it too really into right. the metaphysics of it, but. Yeah. If anyone is knowledgeable about that or curious about that, knowledge of sort of basic Taoist principles, Neo Confucianism, Neo Confucian uh, metaphysics would would aid appreciation of of Enda's works. Uh, if you, if anyone gets into them, it would help that.
0: Listeners, stay tuned for tomorrow when we'll release the second part of this conversation with author Jonathan Geltner and we'll be talking about his own book, Absolute Music, which is a a more realistic work in certain ways, but, but is also about the experience of fantasy
1: and what it does to us.
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Chris.
0: And we'll talk to
1: you real soon. Cheers. full of joy, unscheduled scheduled on a decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. Fantasia does not then reappear instantly ex nihilo exactly as it was, the way the movie implies. Instead, Bastion must participate in the creation of a new heaven and new earth. Now there is one more power and personality at work in Fantasia, that of Bastion the Demiurge his wishes will come true. He will wander the other world in an Adamic state, shaping it in part by naming what he discovers, and in part according to his wishes. Naming is free, but there is a cost to the potency of his desire. With each wish, he forgets more of the human world and what it was like to be Bastion in that world. Naturally, two things happen. Bastion forgets who he is, and as he forgets, He destroys the new Fantasia almost as quickly as he creates it. Our hero means well. He tries to improve the lot of the Fantasticans, as they're called, while at the same time proving his own mettle in pursuit of a quite ordinary boyish vanity. He is an unpopular kid, bullied by the other schoolboys, and in the book pudgy and unathletic, so in the recreated Fantasia, He makes himself handsome and impossibly strong. But choice is not the rational intention we are so often told it is, and decision fatally lacks finality. We cannot know all the effects of our actions any more than we can divine their every cause or search the abyss out of which desire comes. One thing leads to another and Bastion, simply in an effort to get to the childlike empress, because he feels things are going wrong and he longs for her, ends up marching at the head of an army, and first besieging and then laying waste to the empress's bright capital, the ivory tower. Of course he does not find her there. He never finds her again, for she is no longer the object of his quest, his moral imperative. Now all he aspires to do is find a way back to the human world before having lost his memory, he loses his mind entirely. It is a long road back through a fantasia that if it has not been obliterated by the nothing, this time has at any rate been upheaved and set to strife by Bastion's progress through it. What the book does is to take account of the Culpa portion of Felix Culpa, the fall or original and omnipresent fault. In the movie, there's only the Felix, the triumphant finality of the restoration of all things. Bastian's restoration of Fantasia, however, is not final. In the book, it is only the beginning of his spiritual awakening. For him to come to maturity of the heart, Fantasia must perish a second time and not Fantasia only, but with it, Bastian's memory and imagination. We recall that in the human world, Bastian has lost his mother. In the wake of her passing, he has become alienated from his father. The two cannot grieve together, cannot come together to remember the woman they have lost. We may surmise that it is this loss and the alienation it causes which has hurled Bastion into fantasy, shown him the light of the world behind the world. But no one can remain in fantasy while still tethered to the human world. At most we try here and there to see by that other light, though it means we may look on a mountain rising over the sea and find only grief piled upon loneliness. And how does Bastion finally make it back to his father, so that the two of them can recover their friendship? It is not by choice, but by chance. There is hardly anything left of Bastion at this point, any faculty of his spirit with which he might choose. Even when he was trying to use his power of wishing to find a way back to the human world, he corrupted himself with his own desire. No he happens to see an image, a work of art, like stained glass but made of ice, which he has patiently and blindly dug out of the depths of a peculiar mine in a forlorn wintry corner of Fantasia. The image reminds him of his father. You could say it recreates Bastion's mind, filling him with longing and compassion, though it is not an image of his father or of any person. This is all it takes after the turmoil of story, and he is home, as if he saw the bare crown of a tree spread against the sky, and it was enough to change one world into another."